There are moments in life where we face crossroads. And sometimes in hindsight, I look back at my life and I think, what if I had chosen door number two as opposed to door number one? I remember uh, when I graduated college, I was a little bit unsure of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I had a degree in English and uh, had this kind of hunger and desire to want to see the world and travel. So I decided to sign up for the Peace Corps. And I remember going through this big, long process and, and going through all kinds of psychological examinations and submitting essays and interviews. And I finally one day got an email that said I had been accepted to teach English in Moldova. And I was pretty excited about this. Um, my college wrote up this big article about Matt Jaderson going to Moldova to teach English for the Peace Corps. It was a lot of people were talking about it. I was excited. It was this thing that um, I felt like was my trajectory for life. And that summer, I got a call from Pastor Paul Bamel, who was a former pastor here. And I had been on staff at Westminster Woods with him one summer, so he knew me through that connection. He said, hey, we're looking for a middle school pastor. Would you be interested at in working at Eastminster? And it was one of those moments I had two choices, two decisions. Um, I had this longing and this desire to want to go and do something outside of my comfort zone. But I also sensed in the back of my mind, perhaps God is calling me to ministry. The truth is, we are always facing conflicting desires in our life. There are many moments where we have to make a decision to choose, even though we feel like we are being pulled in different directions. And that tension between those conflicting desires that are trying to form us and lead us in different places is what we're going to be looking at this evening. This is how Ronald Rollheiser puts it. He's, there we go. Sorry, I'm working on new technology here. The desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul. We are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless, serene persons who once in a while are obsessed by desire. But the reverse is true. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. Desire intrigues us and stirs the soul. There are two ways in which we often try to resolve this tension. When there are competing desires in our life, or when we have desire, there are two ways in which we try to meet that. The first is legalism, and the other is this idea of hedonism. Legalism is an attempt um, to lean into an external system or religious rules in order to sort of beat down our desires or to con somehow control them. Another word for it might be uh, repressing. It often will lead us to repressing our desires. We do the, um, the Christian practices and the ways of life and the rules and the, and the law, and we live in a way that's almost like checking off boxes so that we are living rightly. But the hard truth is this, and this is part of the whole spiritual formation process. If you suppress desire in, instead of letting it be transformed, it will inevitably leak out, causing a wake of destruction and possibly hurting others in the process. When we suppress our desires, rather than allowing them to be transformed, this is what could possibly happen. And what happens is that legalism fails to live up to its promise, trying to earn favor with others and with God. I've heard this countless times. 
this story where a Christian attends church and attempts to be good and attempts to follow the rules and attempts to sort of live in the way they're supposed to live, but they find themselves failing and then being unhappy. And so they leave. And the false assumption of what it means to be Christian is that being Christian means that we are sort of supposed to make bad people good and supposed to make mean people nice, and that is what it means to be Christian. Instead, what happens is when we fall into this trap, people will often give up. It's too difficult. It's too hard. This faith is too much of a burden on my life. I'd rather just follow my desires and do what makes me happy. And that comes to the second idea, and that's hedonism. Hedonism is instead turning towards our desires and pursuing them no matter the cost, even if it hurts ourselves or others. Meaning, there's a, a quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton that I think captures this beautifully. He says, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. I once heard an illustration uh, surrounding these Russian scientists who did experiments on rats. And they took these rats, and what they did was they put these electrodes in their brain, and they divided them into a, into a box, and on each side of the box there was two different options. On one, there was food and drink and a way for the rat to survive on sustenance. And the other side, there was this button. And anytime the rat would walk towards the button, it would send pleasure waves to the brain of the rat. And so they attempted this experiment, and sure enough, the first time the rat explores and, and is initially drawn to the cheese, but the next time they, they intentionally made it so that the rat could only go to the one side where the pleasure button was. And sure enough, after receiving that wave of pleasure, the rat chose over and over and over again to ignore the things that would give it life and instead get waves of pleasure to its brain until it eventually starved itself. Oftentimes, when we give our life into this idea of hedonism, where we pursue every desire, it leads to ruin physically, emotionally, spiritually. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not the first time that we choose the pleasure over the sustenance, but it happens over time. Ronald Roheiser says, spirituality is ultimately about what we do with desire what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us, this is our spirituality. The reality is, is that our longings and our desire are part of what it means to be human. And the answer isn't found in legalism and in sort of adopting a, an oppressive religious system, and it's not found in hedonism where we pursue our desires at all costs, but instead it's the invitation that we have from Jesus the invitation from Jesus is not to repress our desires or to release and follow everyone, but instead to redirect and reorder our desires around him. This is what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about this idea of formation. What does it mean to be formed by Christ? There are two major obstacles that get in the way of our formation. The first is the human heart. We see this multiple times in scriptures. Here are two examples. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. 
you see over and over again that the scriptures recognizes the fact that the human heart is in fact deceitful. That part of our fallen sinful nature is that it's inevitably always going to lead us to want to deceive. And there's no self-help or self-betterment or self-care that can solve this kind of condition. The second major obstacle is the culture. This is the culture in which we live in. And what's interesting about our culture is that it is very good at forming us without us even realizing it. It's a very subtle form of forming. We live on a steady diet of entertainment, of podcasts, of voices, of thought leaders, and all these things that influence us in ways we don't even realize. But this type of consumption in the world in which we live, it changes us, it forms us, it molds us into something over time. Whether it's sex, money, creativity, or the good life, um, all these things are incredibly alluring. And for many, it becomes a, a sort of form of salvation, that this is what it means to find hope, happiness in the world. It also entertains and distracts us in a way it numbs us and moves us away from having any kind of perspective. And so we have these two obstacles. We have the human heart, which is always going to see. We have the culture that is always trying to form us. And though these obstacles are powerful, what Jesus calls us to is an invitation to do some reformation, to do some unlearning of the ways we've been influenced, and instead to learn the ways of Jesus. So this leads us to our text, which is the greatest commandment from Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In the final weeks of Jesus' ministry, he was spending a lot of time just about every day in the temple. And there are many religious leaders who are very frustrated with Jesus for a variety of reasons. He's gaining a following. He is saying things that, that feel like a threat. And so what they're often doing in this moment is they're trying to trap him and to ask him questions, whether they're social, political, religious questions, trying to trap Jesus publicly and humiliate him. The problem is, that Jesus is so wise in his responses, and he even turns their questions back against them in ways, and people are amazed, and his following continues to grow. And one of these religious leaders who seems to not be antagonistic, but actually seems to have a, a growing respect for Jesus, asks the question, of all the commandments, what is the most important? And a little bit of context, during this time, the rabbis uh, of the time would often um, teach in a way of, of sort of what is the greatest. They would rank what the greatest commandments were. It was which the laws and the Torah are the most important, and they would almost have like a power ranking. And one of the famous examples of this was Rabbi Hillel, uh, who was famously asked to summarize the whole law while standing on one foot. If you remember, Pastor Joe Skillen actually stood on one foot uh, from the pulpit, it was pretty amazing, and recited this entire thing. Um, but he answered by saying, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary. 
In our scene, the Jesus want to know, what is Jesus' answer to this question? What is Jesus' answer to this question that many are being asked? And Jesus responds, the most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This here is a prayer. It's called the Shema. And it comes from Deuteronomy uh, 6, 4 through 5, which is probably the most famous Jewish prayer and cry of every Jewish person. In a little bit of more historical context, in our culture, right, when we talk about what it means to be Christian, we oftentimes will have categories. So you're a Christian, you believe in God, or maybe you're agnostic. You, you're like, well, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Or maybe you're an atheist, or you just don't believe that there's any kind of God and the world is only natural, and that's all there is. But in the ancient East, it was different. There was an assumption that if you were not monotheistic, if you did not believe in Yahweh, that you believed a polytheistic view, which meant there are many gods. There was a God of rain. There was a God of fertility. There was a God uh, for every category you could ever imagine. And so they were using a sacrificial system. There was almost a type of slavery that people had towards gods, right? They had to sort of appease these gods in order to get things to happen the way they needed them to happen. And it formed a level of anxiety and bondage. And when Jesus refers to the Shema, he is calling his audience, the scribes, the, the, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, back to the central truth of life. What matters most is not your religious systems. It's not your 600 and something laws that you have to follow. It's not all of these things. But what matters most is passion for the one true God and compassion for the people that he created. So let's go back. As a modern reader, hedonism and legalism are confronted with this statement. Because the tensions in our heart, our desires, our longings are to exist and they are to be instead reoriented to the one true God. And the goal of spiritual formation is learning to think, to love, to act, and to will toward God in love. So here's what I want to do tonight. Um, I have these four areas, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I put on, on your chairs this little thing. This has our, our little discipleship circle that we drew out last week. If you weren't here last week, ask someone about it. They'd love to explain it to you. Um, but on the back, we have these quadrants. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute when we get to the end in our practice for the week. But in the meantime, what I want to do because I want to talk about each of these categories individually for just a few minutes. First, we have the heart. In the Hebrew, understanding is that heart meant the core of a person's identity. It's more than just a pumping mechanism. It's an operating system that drives everything else. Jesus explains this. He says, in a, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And every person who has come to faith in Christ is given a new live heart. However, there is the possibility that any of us are prone to develop an idolatrous heart. Last week we sang the song, Be Thou My Vision. There's a line that says, prone to wander. All of us who have come to faith perhaps have experienced a season of wandering. Or we've seen an experience where we've been prone to having idolatry in our life. And we may know God is our primary loyalty. We may know that here but it isn't always lived out in how we live in the world. The idolater's heart is one that is divided. 
where God is not the center. And so I asked tonight, how do we identify an idolatrous heart? I have some questions, and I'll just ask you to take a moment to pause and to think about these questions. As I ask them, think about them in your own heart. What is the state of your heart? How content are you in your life right now? If you're not content, what areas of your life do you find yourself discontent? Are you content in your relationships? Are you content with your classes, with your job? Are you content with your finances? And if you're not content, where can you locate in your life where that discontentment is? And here's the last question that I want to take an even longer moment to think about. Because I think if we can identify the answer to this question, we can narrow down what's beneath our idolatry. And the question is this. What thing or person, if you had it, do you think would make you content? I think if you can identify that, you can begin to get after the root of what's causing idolatry. Now, there's another possibility of what can happen to our heart. There's the idolatrous heart, but there's also the hardened heart. We see this throughout the scriptures many times as well. Perhaps your heart has been hardened towards God. Maybe by betrayal, someone has betrayed you, or maybe you've experienced hurt from a church or a spiritual leader, or perhaps you've experienced spiritual abuse. Or maybe even just simply disappointments with God has left you with doubt and disillusionment. And you feel distant from God because something you feel like God has done or someone who said they were a follower of Jesus did in your life. Many of us experience these situations. And I want you to hear, if you're in that category, if this is something where that resonates with you, I want you to know that you are welcome here. And that this is a place where it is okay to not be okay. And that God, if you're honest with yourself, God cannot transform what you are pretending to believe. If we are not honest before God, if we don't get after what's really at the core of what we believe, we'll never be able to see that transformation. And so wherever you're at, wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus, maybe it's something that is, is so far removed from your daily life, I just want you to know that you're welcome here and you're invited on this journey to struggle together. Third, it's the devoted heart. The devoted heart is at the center of our being we love God. Not that we're perfect, but that we seek to give him every area of our life every day. And when idols creep in, they bring those things to Jesus so that every desire becomes realigned for a deep passion for God. This is where we all want to be. But my guess is, because I know my own heart, Right? If I've done a lot of reflecting as I've prepared for this message, and I know my own idols. I know the, own th the things in my life that I struggle with. That we probably fall in some of those other categories, whether it's idolatry or whether it's a hardness of heart towards God. Second, we have the soul. The soul expresses the sorrow and joy that inevitably accompanies the life of faith. Job says, I, I, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. David wrote, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? In Psalm 43, 5, David says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, 
for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. The soul. We saw three different expressions of this in the scripture. What does the soul do? Well, we see that it, it pants, it, it, it longs, it becomes downcast and disturbs, it hopes. And we see this played out almost perfectly in the life of Jesus. Right? When Jesus says he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, Jesus is vulnerable, he is honest, he is raw, he is experiencing the fullness of emotion. And what he does next is really incredible. He takes his honest emotions and he gives them to the Father. The reality is, the highs of life are filled with joy and the lows of life are filled with sorrow and those things are all part of what it means to be connected to the love of God. And I don't know about you, but when I think about David and when he says, oh, downcast my soul, how he just expresses this extreme sadness. And then in the next line, he says, put your faith in God. Right? I have a hard time with that. Because in one moment, he is expressing this pain. And then the next, he's saying, put your trust in God. It's if his heart, head and his heart, there's a disconnect. He knows what to do, but his heart isn't there. There are seasons for all of us where our feeling what we experience isn't always in line with our mind. And yet, this is what leads us to having what Peter Scazzaro suggests, an emotionally healthy spirituality. He argues that in our contemporary culture that we lack an emotionally healthy spirituality. For some, the tendency is to want to let the emotions drive, right? The emotions make all the decisions. The emotions control us. Um, have you ever experienced road rage? Okay, I had an experience this morning. It was just this morning. I am driving. I, backstory. I drove my kids uh, to my parents' house. They're going to watch my kids today. And I got there, and it was a 15-minute drive, and it was on Kellogg. I hate on Kellogg. It's just, I don't like driving. It's just not my favorite place to drive. And I get there and realize I've forgotten the diaper bag, the milk, the diapers, all the things you need. So I had to go all the way back to my house, grab the stuff, go all the way there. I'm already in a bad mood. I haven't had my coffee. I'm already like a little frustrated with myself. And then I see this minivan start to come into my lane. And so I, I wasn't angry, but I gave, you know, just a little love tap on the horn just to let them know. I didn't slam on the horn, right? I feel like I was sanctified in my approach. Just, me, me, you know, just a little love tap. And the car immediately just like yanks back into the thing. And then I, I just can't believe this happened. He speeds ahead, okay, pulls into my lane and then hits the brakes. Like he was intentionally trying to like send a message to me. And I remember in that moment, like, I was like, okay, it was like time stood still for a second. Um, it was a Kairos moment. We talked about this last week, right? A moment where time stood still. And I had a, I had a time to, to respond here. In rage, I could like feel rage in me because I know that I didn't do anything to deserve this. I was just gently letting them know, right? And so in this moment, like I want to just lay on my horn. I want to go past them and, and trying to, you know, who, there's all kinds of thoughts going in my head. <laughs> but I take a moment, I take a breath, and I don't allow my emotions to take over in that moment. But here's the deal. All of us can relate to experiencing anger. We can relate to experiencing sadness. 
We can relate to experiencing pain. And the truth is, all of those things are part of what it means to be human. We need to be able to experience and express our emotions. But giving them to God so that he can reorient them is the way in which we see formation happen in our soul. We see this in the example of Jesus, who is the most emotionally integrated person to ever walk the earth. He shows anger, and it's appropriate time to show anger. He shows sadness. He weeps on multiple occasions. He is not afraid to let his emotions show, but at the same time, they aren't what control him. It's a balance of finding a healthy emotional spirituality. Number three, we have the mind. We are called to love God with our intelligence. And to love God with our mind is more than just thinking about God throughout the day. It's allowing our minds to change and to be renewed to think how God thinks. This is allowing uh, God's mind on all things, whether it's a sexuality or a finance or rest or vocation or relationships. Every part of our life is to ask the question, what does God think? Paul explains it. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And he explains it further in 1 Corinthians. He says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit, but we have the mind of Christ. One of the ways we can simplify this is to simply ask that question, what does Christ think about this? I've been thinking about that today as I've been watching the news. It's, just, it's hard. I, I feel like I, it's too much to take in right now. But watching what's going on in Afghanistan and, and, and seeing all the pain and heartache and everything that's going on, living in the midst of a pandemic, all these things, I'm reminded to ask the question, what does God think about this? What do you think his perspective is about these things? And in every area of life, when we ask that question, we are thoughtful and reflective on what it is that God thinks about this thing. What happens is there's a sort of deprogramming that happens and that we invite the Holy Spirit to renew our minds, the renewing of our minds so that we can think and have the mind of Christ. It's what Paul talks about when he says, take every captive uh, or take every thought captive to Christ. And the key to loving God with our minds is not about our opinions or our instincts, but it's about aligning our thoughts and instincts with the mind of Christ. Lastly, our strength. What does it mean to love God with all of our strength? Prior to the pandemic, I had spent about six months with a buddy of mine working out every Monday and every Friday. And we'd go into his garage, and he had all kinds of goofy workouts. We were flipping giant tires. We were taking sledgehammers and hitting said tire. We were throwing medicine balls. And he had, he had me, like, tie rope around my waist and, like, drag the sled in his backyard. We were doing those battle ropes. Have you seen those? They look kind of cool. Um, it was a lot of fun. But what happened was I, we committed to doing this for, like, six months. And I had gotten stronger. I had felt great. My, I just felt like I was... Um, 
you know, there, there was just something about the consistency of working out with someone and feeling that strength, and it changed the way uh, I sort of carried myself in all of life, and then everything shut down in the pandemic in March of 2020, and I don't think I touched a weight until, well, Monday, this Monday? <laughs> it's been a while. I went to the YMCA, I took all my kids, I'm like, I'm just going to do it, and uh, I woke up the next morning in so much pain. What happens is when you, when you exercise, when you lift weights over time, your body gets stronger and stronger and stronger, but it is the consistency that allows your body to maintain that strength. And the moment you take a break, your muscles begin to turn into something that just is not what they once were. The thing about loving God with all of our strength, it means that we love God with every part of our being. It means that our response to love God is not compartmentalized to once a week in a worship service, but instead it's everything. Every aspect of our life is spiritual with our relationships, with our spouse, our children, our home, at college, in our dorm room, with our pets, internships, jobs, cell phones, music. Everything is spiritual. And when we create a divide between sacred and, sec- uh, sacred and secular, and we sort of compartmentalize these things, we miss out on what it means to be formed and to be Christ followers in the world. And so to love God with all of our strength means consistency. It means practicing our faith on a daily basis. It means reorienting our whole selves towards him and not compartmentalizing for one hour a week. Because God doesn't just love portions of us. He loves all of us, baggage and all. And he longs for us to respond in that way. We have heart, soul, mind, and strength. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is how we are formed. So how do we do this? We have a practice. Last week, we talked through the practice of the Cairo Circle. And this is one that is an ongoing practice. I would encourage you to continue to think about this. Um, But on the back, I have four quadrants, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the practice this week is the practice of examination. Examining our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our strength. Um, King David writes in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me in my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the everlasting. This is a, a dangerous prayer. It's a kind of a scary prayer to say, search me and know my heart and know my thoughts. I don't know about you, but inviting God to do that can kind of be intimidating. But the deal is he doesn't call us to do that in isolation, but he actually gives us a helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper who searches us and speaks to us and convicts us and renews our heart and our mind and empowers us to live and love God fully. And it may feel a bit invasive, but I think, don't we all long for God to know, for anyone to know what's at the bottom of our longings and our desires? For me, it's like that room in your house, like a closet maybe, where it's kind of like your junk closet where you just sort of throw stuff in there because you don't really have a place for it, you don't know what to do with it. And over time, this closet fills up and up and up. And you know deep down in your heart, if you were to take the time to clean it out, it would feel amazing. You'd be happier, 
You'd, you'd feel like you had your life in order, but for some reason, that feels so intimidating. God is not afraid of our closet. He's not afraid of what's inside. He's not afraid because he already knows. And he offers the invitation to come and search our heart and to know us if we submit to him. And so we need God to do this. We need to accept that invitation. And so our practice this week, there are four, four quadrants. And I would say take, um, take time and read through them each day and take a look at each question. And not every question is going to resonate. And I, I wouldn't say ask every question. There's a lot of questions here. But if a question resonates with you as you read that, take a minute and reflect on it. Don't rush. They say that hurry is the enemy of formation. Stay patient. Let the Spirit work and ask these questions and see what God brings to your mind. Perhaps this is a moment and an invitation for God to speak to you. And if you remember last week, we talked about how spiritual formation is best not done in isolation, but done in community. And so when you get past the discover part of the Cairo circle, there is the planning and the challenge and the support. So if you are a part of a faith community that meets regularly or you have people around you, maybe a roommate or a friend or, or a family member, there's a, this is a great opportunity for you to say, hey, I did this exercise. You may think it's weird, but I did this exercise of examination, and this is what I feel like the Lord is speaking to me. And give them an opportunity to give you feedback. Maybe they will affirm that in you, or maybe they can pray for you. But this is how we do this process. This is how we take the process of formation into our everyday life. So take this, ask a question a day, take some time to reflect, and invite the Spirit to do His work. I'd ask yourself the question, what might happen if I respond to the invitation that God has extended by inviting him to search my deepest longings. And maybe, just maybe, it might lead to a life more formed by Christ. One that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and in so also empowers us to love others with that same love. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to Press in to the way in which you're moving. I pray right now for any individual in this room who hears this message and maybe feels a tension or feels uh, guilt or feels shame or feels distant. And I pray that you would minister to them here now. That the, your presence would enter into their life and remind them how loved, how known, and how desperately that you long for a relationship with them. And I pray for all of us who enter into this journey that we would not do it alone, but that we would do it in community, that we would spur one another on and encourage one another and, and give helpful rebuke if necessary or accountability, but also show compassion and grace and mercy to one another. Lord, you called us to do this journey together. And so we as a group say yes to that invitation. As scary as it might be, we open our closet, allow you to search our closet to reveal the things that maybe are underneath some of our idolatry or maybe perhaps would have hardened our hearts towards you. And we pray for that softening. And for some who maybe feel numb, we pray for new life. 
For those who struggle with doubt, we pray for belief and hope. Lord, we give all these things to you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.